You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I talk with personal finance expert Joseph Hogue about credit reports, credit scores, and stock investing. Joseph has over 20 years of experience as an investment analyst, which he puts to work as a leading authority on personal finance and investing through his YouTube channel and blogs. In this conversation, we do a deep dive into credit reports and credit scores. This is the first time that we've had anybody on the show to talk about credit reports and credit scores. And I really enjoyed the conversation because these are topics that I'm actually pretty passionate about myself. Not a lot of people know that. People know I'm a stock and real estate investor, but I'm also pretty passionate about credit reports and credit scores because I think they lead to a very strong base and foundation to become a successful investor. And so I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you guys enjoy it too. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Joseph Hogue. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Robert, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's start with your background. Please share with us your story and what led you to where you are today. Sure. Well, it's, it's a long one. I got out of the Marine Corps and did what everybody or what you're supposed to do, right? I went to college and, and got a job in corporate finance and absolutely hated it, right? So I was financial independence, retire early before it was a thing, right? I saved all my money, wanted to retire early before I really even knew what that was. And then I, I got the I got the realization that what's the use of, of retiring early if you really don't know what comes after that, if you don't have a, a purpose and a plan in life. So I started looking into uh, you know, what I would be happy doing. And I quickly found that I loved talking about investing, analyzing investments, stuff like that. I started as an equity analyst, first in a traditional job, and then more the freelance idea. And I also realized that I wanted that control over my, my financial future, over my work. You can have the best job in the world, the most interesting traditional nine to five job in the world. But if you don't feel that you have that sense of control over your success or your income or just over that job, then you're still going to feel frustration. So I started freelancing as an equity analyst, started building up some websites and, and building kind of those online income sources and uh, went full time in 2013. So working on the blogs in 2017, I actually started a, a YouTube channel called Let's Talk Money and just love the face-to-face interaction, the relationship you can build with people through video. So uh, really you know, living the dream, talking to people about, about something I'm passionate about, about investing, about making money, and, uh, and really feel that I, I'm making a difference in it as well. When you say that you went out on your own and you were a freelance equity analyst, what exactly did that mean? And I ask this because I think there's probably quite a few people in the audience that want to do something similar. Maybe they don't want to go a full-time career into the investment industry and become a, a full-time equity analyst, but they have a passion for it and they want to do it on the side as maybe a side hustle. So what are some of those opportunities that you have as an independent or freelance equity analyst? Well, some of those best online income streams or online jobs start with something that you not only have a passion about, but, but you have some experience in as well. So, uh, so I did start, I did have some experience in equity analysis, and I knew I wanted to eventually shift to owning my own online assets, right? Those, those online, the blogs, the, the websites, things like that. But I knew that it takes time for those things to make money, to start making money and really be able to pay the bills. So 
the idea of uh, becoming a, a freelance analyst was really to, to make that transition, right? I knew it was something that I had experience in, there was a demand for, it, and I could use that as a way to pay the bills while the online assets were growing and starting to make money. And there are jobs out there still in that freelance space. Banks, large, the large bulge bracket banks are, are continuously looking for a way to shed some of those traditional payroll costs. And you see this across a lot of sectors, really. If you look at the actual the W-2 forms that the IRS has received over about the last 10 years, and that's the traditional nine to five job W-2 forms that they get compared to the, uh, the 1099, the tax forms that they get from freelancer or contractor workers or, or independent workers, those W-2, the amount of W-2 forms have just stagnated absolutely flat for the last 10 years, while those other forms, those 1099 forms have, uh, have just gone exponentially higher. So in every industry, every sector, whatever you work in or whatever you want to work in, there are opportunities to, uh, to kind of shift into that freelancing independent kind of idea. When you first transitioned to a financial career, what were you surprised to learn? Oh, well, really, I was surprised to learn how, how much you can actually make. This was back in uh, 2012, 2013. So blogging still wasn't a thing, as they say. Uh, you know, YouTube wasn't a thing. If you would have asked my mom, she would have said, get a real job and those kind of things don't pay the bills. You can. And obviously, there were many more before me that were doing that kind of thing. And it's still to this day, so upwards of eight years later, still surprises me every month when I close out that month profit and loss statement, how much you can actually make in this and how fast that income grows. It's, uh, so last year, I grew my income, my monthly income by 70% on average. The year before that, it was about 40 or 50%. And the year before that, it was right around the, that range. It was about 35%. What traditional job can you actually increase your, your income every year at that rate? It's just unheard of, especially these last 10 years when wages have been so stagnant. Maybe you're lucky if you get 2 or 3 or 4% raise every year. But you know, creating your own online assets, creating your own online business, and you can actually do that. You can actually double, really double your income every year. So we haven't had anyone on the show yet to talk about credit scores. So I'd like to spend some time talking about this topic. I think it's a, a very important topic to learn, understand, and even master, especially for millennial investors. You can be a fantastic investor, whether it be in stocks or even real estate. But if you don't have good credit, it can just make your financial goals so much harder to achieve. So first, what exactly is a credit score? And second, why is it so important? Well, your credit score is, is primarily going to be based off of your credit report. So anytime you file for credit, uh, a card or do an application for a loan, or even a lot of times, even if you're renting a, a house or some, uh, some other things, then that's going to go on your credit report, right? There's actually three credit reports, depending on where a creditor, where somebody loans you money is going to report on. So there's generally three credit reports. That's Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. But they're generally about the same, right? Most creditors will report to all three. Then anyone that is going to extend you credit, they'll pull what's called FICO normally. There's a few different places that generate your credit score, uh, but FICO is, is by far the most popular and the most used. And basically, FICO just uses everything in your credit history on that credit report to generate the score from 350 to, to 850. But really, the extremes there are very rare. It's pretty rare to see someone with more than an 820 credit score or, or less than maybe 450. And this is just kind of a quick measurement of your credit worthiness, right? A lot of banks won't lend to people with less than a 680 credit score. A lot of your federal loan guarantees 
have kind of uh, minimum credit scores that you need to qualify for, things like that. But I think what a lot of people don't understand or don't realize is that your credit score is going to be used in a lot of other things as well. Actually, uh, insurance companies, that's uh, auto and home, can actually use your credit score to, to determine your, your insurance rate or your premium. It's called a uh, credit score-based insurance modeling. And this is something where they found through data and through algorithms that they tend to lose more money on lower credit score insureds. So what they do is they can legally build in a premium, an extra premium for these people that have lower credit scores. So bad credit can actually mean you're paying more for your insurance. Obviously, it's also used to win a lot of times when you're filling out a job application. So if you're going to work in finance or banking or a lot of these other, a lot of these other industries or sectors, they can actually pull your credit report, look at it, and use that in determining whether you get the job or not. Of course, a lot of times when you fill out a, a rental application as well, that landlord might actually pull your credit report, look at that, and it could keep you from, uh, from getting a, a roof over your head. Yeah, I actually have experience with three of those different things that you mentioned. For my rental properties, I always pull credit on all of our tenants. So to your point, I, I'm the landlord. I'm on the other side of that doing exactly what you just said. I also spent three years working at a bank during college. And when I was at that job, they did pull your credit before you started. They even pulled my credit and checked our credit frequently throughout the time that you were there just to make sure that you were keeping up with it. Because if you can't keep your own personal financial health in order, then they had concerns about you giving guidance or helping or working with with money. So that was definitely an aspect of it. And then to the insurance rates, I mean, you're absolutely right. And what's interesting about it is it's not a protected class. Your credit score, it doesn't, you can technically quote unquote discriminate, if you will, against credit scores because it's not a protected class. And so the insurance companies do take advantage of of that and make money where they can and protect themselves where they can. Absolutely. So it's so important to uh, to protect your credit score, to build your credit score, to actually develop it, use credit wisely. And I think that's something that that we so often miss when we when we see some of this advice to to just completely neglect or avoid credit or avoid debt. And sometimes it's unavoidable. Of course, I know student loans are a huge part of of millennials' finance. So I, actually, I loved seeing that that crushing student debt uh, podcast with Travis Hornsby. You did, uh, I think it was a few weeks ago. Excellent podcast and. It's so true. You need to be not only using this uh, this debt smartly, but understanding really how it affects your life. So, how did you find out about credit credit scores? How did you learn about this topic? Because it's not something that's taught in everyday schools, at least here in the United States. So, how did you stumble upon this topic and learn about how important it is, and then the intricacies of it? A lot of it was the hard way, actually. I got out of the Marine Corps and actually started investing in real estate as well. While I was in college and started doing very well. You know, I would buy dilapidated houses, fix them up, refinance them, and then rent them out as I was paying off that mortgage. And of course, you know, in the real estate business, your ability to refinance or your ability to cash out of a property is absolutely critical. This was 2002. So obviously, I was doing well. Everyone was doing well in real estate. But then 2008 comes along and I got absolutely destroyed, right? Just got over my head with trying to finish my MBA degree, working full time. The rentals got behind on a lot of the mortgage payments and just destroyed my credit. So, not only did I lose a lot of the real estate, the business, then I also destroyed my credit and uh, found myself in a place where I couldn't get a loan for a stick of gum. So, I had to learn about uh, you know, what that credit score really was, what, how it affected my, my life outside of even just being able to refinance those properties. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. So I know with credit scores, there are six main factors that really impact how someone's score is calculated. Talk to us a bit about what those six factors are. All right. So really the biggest credit score factors are one is just going to be your payment history. And what sucks here is that a lot of these factors, and especially this one, it's something pretty much out of your control, your history of of payments anyway. So this is going to be on your credit report then you're going to have a history of up to, up to usually about 7, even 10 years of the late payments, or the on-time payments for a lot of your credit cards. If you filed for bankruptcy or if you've got any judgments or liens against you, a lot of that is going to go on there and that's going to be your payment history. So while you can't necessarily change the past and what, what has happened in the past, you can, of course, know that this is affecting your credit score and try to be better with your credit uh, in the future. Okay. So so even if you've got bad credit, one of the best things you can do is try to get maybe a secured card, some kind of credit where you can actually make those payments, build that good credit history to kind of balance out some of the uh, the bad marks that you've got on there in the past. 
another uh, another one that's out of the control of a lot of people here, especially millennials, is going to be that length of credit history, right? And this is just basically how long you've had credit accounts open. I'll understand that all of this really goes to establishing a history for you and you know some kind of a, a trust factor that you're going to be paying off new loans, right? Uh, creditors need need this kind of scoring and this kind of a reporting to understand what rates to offer you, how, how risky you are as a borrower. So your credit history length, of course, is something you, you can't really affect. Another one though is credit utilization. And this is actually one that, that you can affect. This is just how much do you have borrowed versus how much do you, what's your max limit on, on a lot of stuff. So, so for credit cards, for each individual credit card, as well as for all your credit cards or all your debt in total, then how much do you have outstanding that you owe versus the max amount that you can borrow? And what they want to look at is, okay, is this someone that's overextended already? Is this someone that, had, that owes $20,000 on a, uh, you know, a $20,000 line of credit across their credit cards, and they're just kind of scrambling to find money? That's obviously a warning sign for any new creditors. Or is this someone that's got maybe two or three or even 5,000 worth of a debt on cards that they owe, but has 10 or 15,000 balance on them? Still not great, but not necessarily somebody that's the scrambling to find ways to, uh, ways to pay stuff. And then, of course, you know the credit mix is is important. Whether you have non-revolving debt, which is something with a fixed payoff date and fixed payments, something like your mortgage, your student loans can fall under this, things like that, or revolving debt, which is your credit cards. A lot of sometimes a line a line of credit will fall under that, where your payment might vary from month to month, and there's really no payoff date for these lines of credit. You can keep borrowing on your credit card, and so obviously, if you've got a lot of that revolving type of debt then it's just a, another risk factor, I'll say, for creditors, right? You can get yourself uh, deeper and deeper in debt with this, with this revolving credit lines. Whereas with some of those non-revolving ones, you've got a fixed payoff. You've got a, a monthly payment that you know how much it's going to be. Yeah. I remember when I was first getting started with my building my credit, the credit age is probably the thing that bugged me the most, if you will, because like you said, there's just nothing you can really do about it. You just kind of have to wait. And you could be doing sure. everything right. And that's just one of those things that just kind of takes time to build. And same with the payment history. I mean, that's in your control because you can make the payments on time every month. But in terms of total on-time payments, that can only go up so fast. That can only go up you know, monthly. So it can be something that takes time to build and you just need to start early and start right and build it the right way, like you said. Yeah. And, and it's too bad because even just one default or a 60-day late payment can just wipe out a lot of great payment history. And now you're stuck with just trying to build that credit history back up, that good payment history back up. So creditors will overlook that credit history or that one negative point. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? How you can have 75, 90 payments of on time in a row and then maybe one late payment and just erases all of that or it puts you in a bad spot just from one late payment. I saw some research a couple of years ago where it actually showed kind of on average how much a loan default would hurt your credit score. It actually drives credit scores down depending on where the credit score started from. So obviously higher credit scores, if you've been so good at at building your credit history and building that score, you just get one default or or one 30 plus day late payment. It hits it even harder than some of these lower credit scores because obviously the higher they are, the farther they've got default. So just one default could hit a credit score that's in the high 700s. So 780, not 790, 120 points, 150 points or more, and knock you all the way down into that subprime credit group. 
Yeah, I remember reading the exact same thing and it kind of surprised me when I read that. I was surprised to hear that not everyone's scores was impacted equally from a late payment. Rather, if you had been doing better in the past, making one small mistake actually hurt you more than if you had been kind of treading water all along. So I always thought that was really interesting. And so when it comes to these different factors that impact someone's credit score, are they all equally weighted or is certain things more important than others? They're actually weighted differently. And this is the interesting thing because you can actually see, okay, so what's more important to FICO and the credit scoring system, what you can maybe uh, adjust a little bit on your own. So that payment history is 35% of your FICO score, right? This is why it is so important to protect your payment history to always make those those on-time payments. But then your credit utilization is actually 30% of your score, right? So again, this is that total revolving credit that you're currently using opposed to your credit limits. This looks at what your available credit is, kind of gives you a, a snapshot of kind of your credit risk there, your credit history length. So the length of time that you've had credit is 15% of your FICO. Credit mix, something that we really didn't talk a lot about, but this is, again, this is just includes you know, kind of how diverse your portfolio of credit accounts is, whether you've got car loans, credit accounts, student loans, mortgages, other kind of credit credit debt out there is 10% of your score. And then actually another one is new credit. So the number of credit accounts you've opened up recently, whether you've got a lot of uh, applications out there, which are called hard inquiries that, uh, that can kind of weigh on your score, because obviously if you get a lot of applications out there, then it just looks like you're, you're scrambling for that debt, right? And that's actually 10% of your FICO score as well. So there are some of these things that, that you can that impact your score that you can control, things like this new credit. If you know that you're going to be applying for a loan for a car or for a house or, or some other kind of large credit within the next six months or a year, then obviously you want to hold back on, on applying for any new loans, right? You don't, you don't want to send in that, that credit card application form. You don't want to do something that's going to put these new inquiries on your credit and affect that part of your score. So if someone listening to the show today doesn't have the best credit right now, but they really want to get on a better path and improve that, how can they do that? Wow. Yeah. If And again, it's so important to protect your credit history, your score, but there are ways to, to improve your score. Like we said, a lot of it is fixing that payment history. So what you can do is, is you can figure out ways to get things on your credit report that maybe aren't there yet. Like we said, a lot of a lot of creditors might not be reporting to all three bureaus or they might not be reporting to any of the bureaus. Actually, one of the best things you can do if you're renting a uh, renting a house or renting a place is talk to your landlord and get those rental payments put on your credit report. There's actually a lot of services, online services out there that work with landlords to do this and uh, it's going to get those those rental payments that you make every single month, it's going to get those on your on your credit reports, and uh, that's going to start building that good credit history. Also, is uh, you know just working on some of these factors that that really affect your credit the most. So this credit utilization. So if you can't pay down all of your debt, then at least try to focus on that total revolving debt, right? Those credit cards, and this just makes sense from a uh, from a saving money perspective as well, from a budgeting perspective. Usually, those credit cards are going to be your highest rate debt, so you want to get pay- those paid off first, anyway. But but again, that type of debt, that revolving credit, is really what's going to affect your score the most. So as much as you can pay that down, it's always good to to have less than thirty uh, percent credit utilization. 
basically just, again, just what that means is, is owing less than 30% of your total limit on your cards. So if you've, if you've got $10,000 a limit across all your credit cards, then owing less than $3,000 across all of them or individually as well. And what about those services that you probably hear late night commercials about, or even sometimes on the radio that say that they can, you know, fix your credit rapidly or really quick, or, you know, they can remove old payment history, bad payment history. Do programs like that really work? There is some truth to what they're doing. Some of them are actually uh, contacting the credit bureaus and you can do this on your own. This is absolutely something you can do on your own. It's easy to do and very quick, actually. So you can and all the credit bureaus have an online form. You can do it now. We used to have to mail in the, the dispute form. So all three credit bureaus, that's Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian, they all have the online dispute resolution or online dispute forms. And what you do is you go on there and if there's something on your credit report that uh, shouldn't be there, so it's saying that maybe you missed a payment or maybe uh, there's a, a credit account on there that actually isn't yours, then you can go on there and tell them to take that off, tell them that it's an incorrect account. And so, so the credit bureaus actually, by law, have to uh, resolve this. They actually have to contact the creditors. The creditors have 30 days to, uh, to respond to these disputes, whether it's, it's uh, a legitimate credit uh, or a legitimate debt or not. And if they don't respond, then that gets taken off your credit report, right? So this is a, it's a good way to get mistakes off your credit report. And sometimes what a lot of these companies or these uh, services will do, they'll try to Kind of get some of these other credit marks off of your off of your credit report as well. You know, maybe if you've if you missed a couple of payments on that store credit card that you had five years ago, it's still on your credit report. You've you've closed the store account, but it, it was legitimately yours, and you legitimately missed those payments. And sometimes they'll try to get those knocked off as well. They'll dispute those. Not exactly legal. It's kind of a, a gray area there. A lot of times the store isn't going to care whether what's on your credit now or not anyway. You've closed the account, so they take no time to respond and it gets wiped off of your credit, right? So that is going to, going to increase your score. But again, this is something you can do completely on your own. Those, you know, the late night infomercials, I guess, that you're seeing and the, uh, the credit service companies, they're just going to charge you an arm and a leg for something that frankly takes less than 10 minutes on each of these credit bureau sites. Of course, this is all different from that negotiation that you'll also hear about. Now, this is something completely different. This is, this is a, a servicer or a company that is offering to negotiate your debt down. So offering to work as a middle person between you and the debtor or the creditors to pay less than what you owe. And of course, a lot of times they're going to tell you, just stop paying your debt, stop paying your, your bills for about a year or two while they have that negotiating power to, to negotiate these loans and these debts lower. Of course, that is going to absolutely destroy your credit in that time. And this is really something that you want to avoid at all costs. This is a lot of times, this is just as bad as bankruptcy because you do go so, for so long not paying those debts and, and really driving your credit score lower that that it's not worth it. And a lot of times these uh, debt negotiation companies, they're going to charge you almost as much as they're going to end up saving you on the, the amount of debt that you didn't have to pay. So say they get 25 or 30% wiped off of your debt and you don't have to pay that, but their fees are going to end up being 10 or 15 or 20%. So you're really not saving nearly as much as you might expect. I'm glad you made that distinction because I think the line can be blurry sometimes between credit repair and debt forgiveness specifically when it comes to those questions or those programs that sometimes are being offered. 
So what tools or resources do you recommend someone uses to track their credit score and their credit history and just their overall credit report? Well, actually, by law, you are, you're allowed to see your credit report once a year from each of the bureaus. And what I like to do, instead of just going online and getting all three credit reports all at once, is what you can do is you can stagger that. So if you get three credit reports and you've got uh, one year, you can see each one. Then every four months, you go look at one of your credit reports, right? You go to the credit bureau's website, you, you fill out the information to get your free credit report. And not only is that going to keep you updated on really what's on your credit report and make you more savvy as far as where your credit is at, but it's also a great way to monitor your credit report, right? And to make sure that someone's not going to steal your, your credit and, or steal your identity and, and racking up different credits on there. So that's one thing is just staggering your credit reports, the free credit reports that you can get. Another idea though is uh, just about any credit card is going to have a free FICO score service. They are going to actually ping your, your credit report or your FICO score maybe once a month, maybe every couple of months. And you're going to be able to see that for free. When you actually get your free credit report from the bureaus, you don't see your score. So it's very important to be able to see your score as well as, as the credit reports. There are a lot of services out there. Actually, all three credit bureaus actually offer a monitoring service where, where you can instantly see your report and your scores all the time. But these are upwards of $15, $20, $30 a month. And you can really do this all, all free and very quickly if you just kind of plan it out that way. I personally just like to use Credit Karma. It's maybe not the most accurate in terms of the score always, but the history is usually pretty good and it's free. So that's a resource that I personally like to use. There you go. Yeah, I've used Credit Karma in the past. Hadn't, haven't used it in, in a while because I do have a couple of credit cards that just show me my score. But yeah, you're right. If you do see your score falling, even if you're, you're using a credit card service to, to see your score, if you see your credit score falling quickly, then you're obviously you're going to want to know what's happening there. So a free service like Credit Karma is great. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. 
Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. We've had a great conversation so far throughout this episode about credit reports and credit scores. Now I want to transition to talk about stock investing. With the rise in popularity of financial independence and retiring early, I've noticed that a lot of popular YouTubers and personal finance influencers on social media recommending the dividend investing strategies, even for millennials. Historically, dividend investing had mostly been utilized by older investors closer to retirement and millennials or just young investors in general were focusing more on high growth strategies. Where do you seem to stand on this? Do you think dividend investing is a good strategy for millennial investors? I do. I do. I think even younger investors can have a good portion of their portfolio in dividends. It's actually been proven through research, research by Ned Davis, that actually that dividend stocks are, are companies that regularly and consistently increase their dividends actually outperform other stocks over the long term. So we're talking outperforming other stocks that don't pay a dividend, outperforming uh, dividend stocks that don't increase their dividend, and so forth. It's just something in that uh, you know that dividend model that really a lot of times helps companies, but it can't be taken as as a cure all either. You're right that younger investors they need some growth stocks as well. They need some growth in their portfolio, and typically what you see in a dividend company or a company paying dividends is the reason why it's returning that cash flow to investors is it's kind of running out of those reinvestment opportunities, right? You get a lot of those high growth tech companies or any high growth company that it's making a, a better return on those growth opportunities, right? Opening more stores, doing more research and development, and just that general growth that it's worth more to investors to just keep the cash flow in the company. And that's still a, a very powerful thing for an investor. Another warning sign, I guess, or, or risk, I would say to uh, dividend investors is just chasing that dividend. I see so many people ask me questions about this fund or that fund that pays a 15 or 20% dividend or this stock that pays a, an 8 or a 10% dividend. And they're just chasing that dividend yield without really looking at how that company is paying that dividend or how that fund is paying the dividend. The risk in it could be cut or really where the stock price is going. So a lot of these, especially some of these closed-end funds, what you'll see is the the manager, the fund manager is using so much leverage to get that 15 and 20% dividend that if anything goes wrong in the economy or, or around the stocks they're holding, then the stock price just crashes. So you may be collecting that 15% dividend, but you're losing 15 or 20% on the stock price. 
So eventually you're going to have to sell the stock and you're going to have to take a huge loss. So with all of that said, where should a brand new investor get started? Maybe a retirement account, ETFs, individual stocks. What do you believe is best? Well, first, absolutely take advantage of of those retirement accounts, right? If you've got a 401k with a company match, that should be your number one priority is investing at least enough each month or, or each quarter to fully max out that company match. That is free money. That is the best return you'll ever make. If you're investing $100 in your 401k and your company is matching even half of that, that's, that's like a 50% return. And no investment will ever get you a, as high a return as that. So max out your company's 401k match. After that, your priority should be those retirement accounts. So your IRA, your Roth IRA, you can only do about the max of 6600 a year right now. So, uh, But you get some great tax savings, whether it's an immediate tax benefit or a tax benefit when you withdraw the money in retirement. So that should be your second priority is maxing those out, taking advantage of those tax benefits. As far as the investing itself, and I like to recommend the kind of what's called a core satellite strategy. And this is basically the core of your portfolio. So we're talking 60 to 70% of your money. You put in just a, a small collection of funds. This is going to be broad funds, like maybe an S&P 500 fund that really covers the entire large cap stock market. Maybe it's going to be a real estate fund like the Vanguard VNQ, which owns real estate companies, pays a great dividend, and, and really kind of tracks a commercial real estate. It could be uh, some bond funds like the BLV, which is the Vanguard long-term bond fund. And what this is going to do is this, gonna, this is going to give you broad exposure to those different asset classes, right? So stocks, bonds, and real estate. But it's also going to give you kind of a, a stress-free part of your portfolio. If you're going 60 or 70% of your money in these big diversified funds, it's something you really don't have to worry about. You put your money in these. These are already diversified across, across the different asset classes and across the different sectors of the economy. And then you know, if you do want to invest in individual stocks, maybe you take that other 30 or 25% and invest in just a handful, maybe no more than 10 individual stocks that you really like. Okay, this is not only going to gonna make it much less, uh, much less time that you have to devote analyzing those stocks, but you're going to be limited to only the best that you really believe in. You don't need to go find 15 or 20 stocks to, to fill your portfolio. So you do think that people should run a bit of a concentrated portfolio? Well, not necessarily, because I think that 60 or 70% that you're going to have in funds, that's going to diversify across the entire stock market sectors. So if you've got within that 60 or 70%, if you've got maybe 60% of that or, or half of that in stock funds, you're already diversifying across every sector and most of the industries. With these 10 funds, understand these are only maybe... Three to five percent at the most of your uh, of your entire wealth here of your investable wealth. So even if you've got thirty uh, percent in these ten, that's still that's still only a third of your total assets. So you do have to kind of look at so so for example in your in your core part of your portfolio, if you're holding a sector fund. So so like if you've got twenty percent of your wealth in the technology select sector, Spider XLK there, and then you've got five of your of your stock picks, of your five of your 10 stock picks are all in tech, then sure, you're going to be concentrated and you're going to want to watch that because any market weakness or, or especially any kind of weakness within the tech sector is going to hit your heart. So what I'll do a lot of times is within these 10 stocks, then, then I'll look into different sectors. So I might look at financials, pick the best two stocks out of there, tech, pick the best two stocks out of there. So I still try to be a little diversified within those 10 picks as well. But even if you have three or four of those stocks within a certain sector, or even within an industry that you really like, then 
it's still a relatively small part of your portfolio if you've got that 60 or 70% in those diversified funds. We talked earlier about your previous stock pick, the Starbucks of China. But what is another stock that you're particularly interested in right now? Maybe it's not one that you'd allocate 100% of your portfolio to, but it's just one that you're maybe on your radar or just another one that you like. And why do you like that pick? It's actually not a stock, but I'm going to cheat. I'm going to pick two. One is that, that VNQ, that Vanguard real estate ETF. That's a, so ticker VNQ, and it's a collection of real estate investment trusts, right? I think this is an excellent, excellent fund for investors to get that real estate exposure. Right? Maybe they, they don't have the money to, to go directly into real estate investing, but they want that exposure for a great cash flow asset that's going to be a little bit, you know, help them diversify a little bit away from stocks. I really like the, the B&Q or, or really any, any real estate fund. Another fund, the AMLP, that's the Alarian Master Limited Partnership Fund. And this is a collection of uh, master limited partnerships, which are all companies that own energy pipelines, storage, and processing facilities. And what I love about this one is you get the benefits of an MLP, which are basically a very high cash flow, as well as some of those a little bit more diversification away from some of your other traditional energy stocks. But you get you don't get the negatives of an MLP, which is a, a K1 tax form, right? So if you're investing directly in an MLP company, then you're going to get a special tax form each year. It's going to it's not really difficult, but it's something that a lot of investors try to avoid because it's just one other tax form you have to file. But with this AMLP, this fund, then, then you don't get that. It's treated just like a, any other fund. Uh, I think it pays something like 9% dividend yield right now. Obviously, energy has not done very well over the past three years, but it is something that owns some great assets, I believe has at least another 10 or 20 years before we, we really see the end of energy independence. Given your experience investing in just a variety of different ways, including stocks, real estate, and side hustles, if someone listening to the show today has a few thousand dollars, say anywhere from maybe a thousand to three thousand dollars that they're looking to invest, what do you think is the best way for them to invest this money? Is stock investing really the best way to go? Or might it be better for them long term to invest in starting a side hustle? Excellent question. And this is something I kind of struggle with on the, on the channel a lot because it's, uh, the investing videos are very popular. Everybody wants to know the next big stock or, or the next dividend stock. But as much as I love talking about investing, you will never get rich from investments. Sure, you might find that Tesla or the next big thing every once in a while. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to make you, it's not going to make you rich. You need to create those other income sources. So if, if you do have that $1,000 or a few thousand to invest, I would say start off by investing in yourself, take some online courses or learn something, a new skill or something about a hobby that you can take that in and monetize that into a, a side hustle. And the beauty of this is it's not going to cost $1,000. Uh, you can take a lot of online courses for $10, $15, turn those into a side hustle through a blog or a YouTube channel for basically nothing. I started my YouTube channel on, on about $600 worth of equipment, but you can start it with just the phone, the phone in your pocket, right? So a lot of these, if you want to get started with some real momentum, maybe it's going to cost you $500 for, for courses to, to learn the, uh, the hobby or the skill, and then to turn that into, into a legitimate business. But it's, you know, it's, it's very inexpensive to start a business, start an online business today. With the rest of that, sure, I, I would go into stocks and really just start that investing, start that investment portfolio. What is your number one piece of money advice for a millennial listening to the show today? 
stop thinking about the money. And that might say it's obviously uh, counterintuitive there, but uh, I would say find something that you enjoy doing and you could see yourself doing for, for decades and then figure out a way to make money doing it. We talked earlier about the, the fire, the fire movement and uh, financial independence retire early. And it's really, you know, so what? So you get to early retirement, then what? You know, at best, you become some kind of sunburnt alcoholic. Okay. You need to, every, we, we all need a purpose in our lives. And you need to find that and find a way to make money doing that. And then the money becomes secondary. You know, retirement becomes secondary. I don't know what I would do if I wasn't doing this, uh, you know, creating these YouTube videos and, and interacting with the community on, on Let's Talk Money. So I still save money for saving in, in my retirement accounts because of those great tax savings. And I put money away, but I don't know that I'll never ever need it because I don't know that I'll ever fully retire. And just to further your point, and I think I know the answer to this, but I'm assuming you didn't start your YouTube channel to make millions or even to make money off of, right? You probably started it as a passion project. And then, like you said, you took your own advice and you eventually learned how to monetize it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. These, uh, the blogs, are, a big part of it was to make money, to, uh, to be able to start that online business and, and really transition away from that traditional nine to five. But it did come from that, that area of passion and that hobby. Being able to talk about personal finance is so important because a lot of these no, you're not going to make you're not going to make thousands of dollars a month starting out. You're going to make uh, you know maybe a few hundred at most, but you're going to enjoy doing it. You're going to become the expert, and gradually you're going to build that online income stream up. And even if it is just a, a couple hundred bucks or even a thousand bucks a month, that's one of the types of businesses that I'm super passionate about. You know, I'm a huge stock investor. I love real estate, and I'm even entrepreneurial. You know. If I could have the opportunity to build a billion dollar company, would I do it? Probably. But I think what's overlooked in today's world is that I think people overlook those 500 to 1,000 to even a couple thousand dollar a month businesses or side hustles that you can build on the side. And I think it's missed so frequently because those billion dollar unicorn startups are glorified all over the news and social media. And so people don't think of these smaller businesses or side hustles as success. Whereas if you really look at the numbers and you look at how that side hustle income can really impact your life, it can be life-changing, even at a small dollar amount like we just talked about, even if it's not billions. And so I really like that point. And I really try to drive that home a lot through this podcast. And I've heard a lot of guests talk about that and say the same thing. You're absolutely right that those the, the tech billionaires and the, the huge companies are glorified. People forget that there are over 18 million millionaires in the US. Okay, The millionaire next door isn't, isn't the founder of, uh, of Uber. He's the guy, yeah, he's the guy with this online business that's making even just a thousand dollars or a few thousand dollars a month, but he's grown that and that value of that company is is in the millions. And a lot of these, the beauty of a lot of these is you can create these online businesses in five, ten hours at the most every week, right? You can open up an, an Amazon FBA store, you know, start uh, exporting your 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 products from uh, from China through through Alibaba or, or through FBA and it takes five or 10 hours a month or a week to, to run these and yeah, grow them into a million dollar business. And what I also really like about this is that it allows you to approach life from a perspective of trying to win rather than trying to not lose. And when you're trying to win, you're able to try different things, take a little bit more risk and just work on more projects that have higher upside 
than you are if you're just always trying to not lose and really just trying to maintain your career and not lose your job. And being able to do that has a profound effect on, on the wealth you're able to generate. Absolutely. And, and I love that. Trying, trying to win, not trying to lose. It just speaks to that scarcity mindset that so many people have, that limited resources and limited time and what's so limited when you can shift that mindset into what's possible and what you can actually build and what you can actually do. It really, really does. Joseph, thanks so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think we talked about a lot of important financial money investing topics that I think the audience is going to really enjoy. Where can our audience go to learn more about you? Well, I've actually got the three blogs all covering personal finance, investing, and making money online. But really, right now, it is all about the YouTube channel. So that's Let's Talk Money. It's on YouTube. Uh, we've grown the, uh, the community to over 152,000 people that are really creating the financial future you deserve. I love to see everybody there. I love the face-to-face interaction that we get on, on YouTube. Joseph and I have talked about a lot of different resources, some stocks, some books all throughout this conversation. I'll be sure to put links to all of those different things in the show notes so that you guys can go check those out after the episode. I'll also put links to Joseph's YouTube channel, his blogs, all those other resources in the show notes so you can connect with him there as well. Joseph, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Robert. Had a good time. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.